0: Our scripture today comes from Matthew 6:19 through 23 from the NIV version. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness!" Tim, could you throw up that first slide? I want to start with this statement this morning. It's a joy to be hidden and a disaster not to be found. Think about that for a moment. I just invite you to sit with the expression. What images come up inside of you when you read something like that? Are there memories that come up for you? Ideas, concepts. I read that statement this week, and I was struck by something in particular as I thought about it, that I think what every human being desires and wants is to be pursued. All of us desire to be pursued, and not just by anyone or anything. There are particular people that we want to pursue us. We want to be pursued by somebody who loves us, somebody who sees us somebody who is fond of us, somebody who is going to make us feel safe and connected and whole. We have this deep longing to be pursued by those kinds of people that we deeply want to connect to. I read a story this week about a woman who, when she would come home every day, her cat would greet her when the cat felt like it, because that's what cats do, right? Although dogs always greet you when you come home Sometimes the cat might greet, sometimes the cat may not. This particular day, she comes home, and her cat didn't greet her. And so she went looking for her cat because she wanted to see her cat, and she found the cat huddled up underneath the couch. And so instead of pulling the cat out or inviting the cat to come out, she decided to lay down on the floor and just simply gaze at the cat. And she looked at her cat and just stared at her. And before she reached out to begin petting her cat, she noticed that her cat began to purr loudly as if somehow the fond gaze stirred up something inside of this animal. And I wondered to myself, how much more do we as human beings, when somebody is looking at us with a fondness in their eye, how loudly do we purr? What comes up inside of us when somebody is looking at us, and we're like, wow, I feel like you're really, really seeing me for me. And not because you want something from me or need something from me, but simply because you desire to be with me. It's like a deep connection of wholeness that we feel from another human being that simply wants to know us, love us, accept us. We are not a means to an end. And when someone sees us as a means to an end in particular, what I think it brings up in us is a distortion of how we view ourselves. It, it uh, can distort how we see others. And ultimately, it can distort how we see and view God. Which brought up another question for me. Does God see us as a means to an end? Does God only pursue us when we're in trouble? Does God only see things in us that are wrong with us? Or does God see good things in us as well when he comes looking for us and pursuing us? It seems to me that we want to have our own private experiences of the world. We want to feel like our unique selves. And yet at the same time, we want to feel seen and understood by those around us so all of that has been spinning around in my head this week so welcome to my head and it got me thinking again about the people that I pass by every day the people that even on a walk how many people feel unseen unnoticed as we walk by them each and every day and and in particular in a pandemic when all we have are people's eyes to see And then it got me thinking even deeper than that, how many people walk through the doors of this place that we call Evergreen with a deep desire to want to be recognized and seen? Is that something that's operating in our subconscious or somewhere in our mind and our heart that when we walk into this place, we just hope that somebody is actually excited to see us for the first time? Does somebody really see us and recognize us? And my fear is that many times what happens in communities is that people can walk in unnoticed, and then people walk out unnoticed, and that creates a huge barrier that that person may already be feeling between them and humanity. We have a deep desire to be seen, and my hope and my prayer is that every person that walks into our community that is a part of this place would at least be seen and recognized and welcomed in this place. This got me thinking even deeper about the question that we've been living into as a community through our Lenten journey, and the question that we've been leaning into is the question that Jesus asks, who is my neighbor? I would take that even further, and I wonder, what does it mean to actually see my neighbor? Not just living with the question, who is my neighbor, but what does it mean to see my neighbor, and does that seeing my neighbor actually lead to something else? The passage that we're looking at this morning comes out of Matthew chapter 6. It's embedded in what is called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' way of saying, this is what it looks like when you fully step into the kingdom of God here on earth. These are the practices, these are the actions, these are the disciplines and the posture that somebody who's choosing to align themselves in my kingdom will look like. He talks about all kinds of things. But in this particular text, he uses two cultural idioms. And I want to explore these idioms this morning because when you're looking at a teaching and you see a statement that you think, well, that's a strange thing to say, I think it's always good for us to uh, understand that this might be something embedded in the language of a first century Jewish man that we may not fully understand as we step back from a 21st century perspective, and especially in a 21st westernized perspective of how we read The text. What are these idioms? What is it that Jesus is getting at and what is he inviting us into? So let's dig a little bit. The two idioms that we're going to move through this morning are storing up treasures in heaven. And then the text that we looked at talked about a healthy eye. But I'm going to use the King James translation, which I don't normally do. But the King James Version says, be single-eyed. And what does that mean? To store up treasures in heaven and to be single-eyed. All right, now I'm going to ask you a question, and maybe you can shout out an answer loud enough to where I can actually hear you through your mask, okay? Are you ready for this? When I say um, you're barking up a wrong tree, what does that mean? Anyone? Don't bark back at me. <laughs> What's that? Okay, you're speaking to the wrong person. What else does it bring up in you? You're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, following the wrong lead, you're looking in the wrong place, or possibly accusing the wrong person, right? That's an idiom that we understand in our culture. Here's another one. That's gonna cost you an arm and a leg. Yeah, it's expensive, right? Yeah, you can't afford it. Clearly, Jared understands that's going to cost an arm and a leg. How about this one? Uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, diversify. People that operate in the financial world understand this very clearly. Now, a thousand years from now, as people are looking back at us, and they're looking at our use of language, if they were to read these things as not as idioms, but just as like, what was wrong with people a thousand years ago? And why did they feel the need to bark up trees? Why did they purchase things with their body parts? They must have been desperate, Jared, be careful. And apparently they carried around baskets full of eggs just one at a time. What is wrong with these people? It can, it can lead to some interesting conclusions. So when we look at a cultural idiom and we read the Bible, in subtle ways, what can happen is when we read things on the surface or we don't do the deep dig into the actual context, we can arrive at some interesting conclusions about what is said in the text based on our assumptions of how we read into the text. So our text today, I'm going to read to you the King James version of this particular passage so that you can hear it differently. It says this, the light of the body is the eye. If your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. Hmm, what could that possibly mean? Well, John Wesley who was a very popular theologian back in the 1700s, looked at this strange saying, and he arrived at this conclusion. To be single-eyed is to be utterly focused on pleasing God. Now, you look at that from the surface and you think, oh, yeah, that sounds great. That'll preach for sure. And if your eye is evil, it means that you're only focused on yourself, your needs, only interested in pleasing you. Now, that's good. That's a good teaching. You you could arrive at that conclusion even based on the whole biblical narrative. You could think, oh, that's a plausible argument. So therefore, don't don't store up treasures in heaven. Don't spend a bunch of time um, getting all of your resources now, getting a bunch of stuff down here on earth. You could take that even deeper. Other translations say the good eye. Ours said a healthy eye. Some say a clear eye. Others say a spiritually perceptive eye. Now, when we go back into God's story, which I think is important to root us in the bigger narrative, and we dig deeper into the idea of what God is like, I think it's helpful for us to go, what would a Hebraic way of seeing things have thought about this particular statement? So the Hebrew way of thinking was deeply embedded in imagery and then taking in something visual didn't mean just taking things in for the sake of gaining information. It was taking in something into the soul that then in turn affected your actions. So that information that I'm taking in isn't just taking it in for the sake of taking it in so that I gain more knowledge. How does it then affect the way in which I live my life or a lack of action? So in the Hebrew scriptures, for example, The people were trying to do the best that they could to come up with images and ideas of what God was like. And so they gave God's name based on how God acted with people. And one of the names that they attempted to define God was the name Jehovah Jireh. How many of you are familiar with the term Jehovah Jireh? If you've been around this subculture, if you've been around Christianity, that's a familiar term that comes out of the Old Testament. And the name Jehovah-Jireh has been translated as God will provide. But if you take it and translate it in its literal form, it means God will see. And you're like, oh, where are we going with this? Jehovah-Jireh, God will provide. But not just that, God will see. So you could take that even deeper and you could say, when God sees, he will respond. Excuse the typo on the screen there. When God sees, God will respond. We were created by a seer, this divine seer, and we were created by a seer, therefore we were created to be seen, pursued, known, acknowledged. That's part of what it means to be a human. Years ago, I led a small group where we got together simply to do spiritual practices, and we would share... Uh, various spiritual practices each week and somebody would bring a practice and then we would implement that practice in the group. So this man, Stan, brought a practice that made me really uncomfortable and I didn't want to do it, but we did it. And I was the leader of the group, so I had to do it, right? So he said, we're going to do this practice. Pick a partner, sit across from one another without a barrier in between you, and I want you just to look into each other's eyes for five minutes, how to deplete a church in just one day. (laughs) I'm never going back to that community ever again. They want you to stare at each other for five minutes. What is this, some kind of a love fest they got going on there? So we sat across from one another, and we just looked into each other's eyes. The person that I was doing the practice with was a man named Sharam. And Sharam looked at me, and I looked at Sharam, and we held each other's gaze for five minutes. Man, I was squirming inside. Can you imagine how, how uncomfortable you'd be doing that with somebody? But that was the practice, so we stayed in it. This other couple over here, two gals in the group, within a minute to two minutes, one of the girls started weeping, and they held each other's game. She just started crying. Something was being stirred up and being seen by another human being who was created by a seer. There was something going on deep down in her soul, in my soul. We then asked the question, from the perspective of the person being seen, how did you experience that? And as uncomfortable as it was and as odd as it was, it was actually a really good practice. And we shared how it felt to be seen by somebody for five minutes. This got me thinking, How often do we take the time to really see someone? How often do we take the time to sit down and see our children, to really see them? How often do we take the time to see our spouses and our partners in life? Is it any wonder why we are so desperate to be noticed? Is it any wonder why we spend so much time working on our our bodies and why we strive at work and sometimes we talk louder? Have you ever noticed that? You'll start to talk louder because you want to be heard and so you think if I just talk louder, people will hear me more clearly? Or we talk too much? And I think it goes back to the fact that we were created by a seer, therefore we were created not to just be seen, but we were also created to see And when we practice seeing, it does something to our souls. It's like our spirits and the very inner parts of who we are begins to wake up to who we were created to be. Could this be embedded in the question, who is my neighbor? Or maybe an even deeper question is, is Jesus inviting me to see my neighbor? Not just living with the question, who, but how do I see my neighbor? Now, I asked us when we began our Lenten journey to put down our already predisposed and our concepts of what Jesus came to do and to pick up a different lens and to look through, in particular, Luke's narrative as we approach Easter Sunday through the lens of Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, I began to look at this particular text, even in Matthew's narrative, through the lens of being single-eyed. If being single-eyed is about seeing something, and not just seeing, but seeing and then acting, what could that possibly mean in light of Jesus' mission in the world? How does this resonate with you? I've come to see the poor. I've come to see the prisoner and to set them free. I've come to help the blind to see. I've come to see the oppressed all in declaration that this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is what I have come to do. And we remember remember that God is a seer and that when God sees, God doesn't just see, he responds. And then when we see Jesus, we as followers of Jesus live with the belief and the conviction that Jesus is God in the flesh. So what we see Jesus seeing leads to action. Jesus doesn't just proclaim what he sees, he then demonstrates this is what it actually looks like when the kingdom of God is flaring up in the world. And this got me thinking deeper and deeper about this Jehovah Jireh. I went back to a story in the book of Exodus where Jehovah is described as a seer And it says early on in the book of Exodus that God began to see the affliction of his people who were being oppressed by an empire, oppressed by Egypt, a superpower. And not only did he see, it says he saw and he heard the cries of the afflicted. And then he said, and I'm going to come down and rescue them. Do you see that embedded right in the action of God? He sees and then he Acts. So this great seer, this divine seer, sees suffering, and instead of ignoring it, instead of getting further away from it, we see God moving into it. He steps in and begins to step into the suffering of humanity. But then I noted, it was more than this. God didn't just say, I'm going to step in and rescue them. He comes up with this plan. I need someone to do it with me. I need a partner. And you're like, what kind of plan is that? You're the God of the universe, and you want to use us human beings to actually step in and participate with re-stepping into the suffering of our fellow human beings and stepping into the afflictions of the people. And he ends up going after, he begins to pursue this person, Moses. Now, Moses was a Hebrew, but he grew up as an Egyptian, He grew up in the superpower, in the belly of the empire. And he grows up on the side of power, even though he's a Hebrew. And he hears and he sees the affliction of his people day after day after day. And the cries got so loud at one point, he actually witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and something rose up inside of him that he could no longer ignore, the justice began to rise up inside of him, and he took it even too far, and he ends up killing an Egyptian. And now he has to get out of Egypt, and so he runs for his life, and he moves out into the suburbs of Midian. And he begins to create a good life in the suburbs. And when I look at the story, I think, well, Moses figured out a way in order to um, no longer have to see or hear the suffering of his people. He moved way out of the problem. Instead of staying in it, he 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 respectfully moves away from it. And he's living a good life, raising a family, taking care of business, doing what a good man would do. Moses was living a good life until one day, the divine seer found him. And he revealed himself in a burning bush. And this divine Jehovah begins to speak to Moses and he calls out his name and Moses is just carrying on with business as usual and he walks by this burning bush and the text tells us that Moses stopped and he turned aside to see this strange sight. This bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. One rabbi noted that the miracle of the story is not the burning bush. The miracle of the story is that Moses actually stopped long enough to look. And think about that. That's the miracle. He's living the good life. He's doing the things that he's supposed to do. He's got a family. He's got kids. He's just taking care of business. And one day, for some reason, Moses stopped, and he turned aside to see, and then God spoke. And the text says that when God saw that Moses saw, God then invited him to partner with him. Isn't that interesting? God saw that Moses saw. There was two people that were sawing with each other. They were seeing and sawing. And what happened was, as the gaze started to happen in the partnership of Moses, I see the affliction and the oppression of my people, and I actually want you to go and do something about that. This got me thinking back to Jesus' statement about being single-eyed. And it's it's on, it's beyond just being utterly devoted to pleasing God. There's something else going on here. Being single-eyed, focusing on the Luke floor floor translation of what Jesus calls us into to see the poor, to enter into life with the poor, and not just to throw things at the poor, but then also to partner with the poor in relationship. Enter into the suffering of the poor because we can't serve two masters. We must choose because this is what we were created for, friends. And when we step into the reality of what we were created for, the whole body starts to come alive. Light begins to fill everything that we are. I've come to see the poor. Now, storing up treasures in heaven is another cultural idiom. When translated through the idiom, what it means is simply this, take care of the poor. Storing up treasures in heaven means to take care of the poor. Now, how does that change the way in which you read that text? If storing up treasures in heaven isn't just about someday we'll get something up there, but it's more about life down here on earth and more specifically to enter into the life of the poor, what does that mean in terms of how we use our resources and our energy and our time and how we develop relationships. So, I've attempted at my best to rewrite this text. I know that probably sounds really blasphemous, but forgive me. I'm going to attempt to do so. So, here we go. So, give generously to the poor and invest your energy and resources into eternal things. Because when you do, your priorities and outlook will change. How you see others shows your true inner self. If you have a sincere, unenvious heart that wants to help others, your whole personality will shine because of it. But if you are blind to the needs of others and are self-centered and greedy, your soul will be dark indeed. You cannot be a slave to your own greed and try to serve God. You have to choose. Now I want to take us back to the prayer of submission for a moment. In light of what we just heard, the prayer of submission, the old 12, 3, 6, 9 shuffle that we're gonna step into this week. Lord Jesus, today I choose to submit. Do whatever it takes to make me more like you. What does that bring up in you? If we are a people dedicated to being single-eyed, storing up treasures in heaven, In other words, storing up that which actually lasts, and that's people. Who is my neighbor? Who is Jesus inviting me to see? And not simply just walk by, but see and then move. So let's sit with that for a moment. I'm gonna ask Jared and Linnea to come back up and get ready. But I wanna invite us just for a moment to close our eyes, open up our minds and our hearts and our bodies into that posture of submission, that openness, like an open palm, open heart, open mind, open soul and to live into that prayer, do whatever it takes to make me more like you. We as a people are choosing in this moment to align ourselves with your purposes in the world, in the world, Jesus. So lead us now, direct us, challenge us, help us to become more like you. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Blessings like God's love are not one-way experiences. As you've been blessed with the mark of God's love, you are now called to go out from this place to bless others. May the God who created you create opportunities in serving others. May the Christ who teaches you teach you during Lent how to love fully others. And may the spirit of gentleness be your companion along this Lenten journey